Hi, my name is Marcus, and this is a companion podcast for the CG Jung Helpdesk Meetup Group. I host live events on Zoom every two weeks about the concepts and ideas of the Swiss psychologist Carl Gustav Jung. Every event I give a presentation about the Jungian concept, so have fun with this event's topic. So, recording in progress. Perfect. Today I will tell you a little bit about the dynamics of the psyche and the ideas that Jung had. As a short introduction into Jung, he was a Swiss psychologist, lived from 1875 to 1961, so a pretty long life, a very productive life, a pretty famous person, <laughs> otherwise he wouldn't be here. <laughs> famous psychologist lived in a time where psychology as a field was fairly new. He was a very influential person for that time and had a very unique set of ideas, reaching, in my eyes, pretty far-reaching influence also that can be felt today, at least in popular culture, you find Jung practically everywhere, music, film, books. It's, it's quite amazing. Out of the psychologists, he had a really, really big influence because he has this spiritual, cultural aspect that is very, very strong. To explain about the dynamics of the psyche, this means talking about the models and the ideas and concepts that he had about the psyche. And As I already mentioned, this is all from a time where psychology as a field was very new in the beginning of the 20th century and was a little bit like the Wild West. It was the newest science, the youngest science. It was everything was bleeding edge and new and was discovered and so on. The stance of Jung was really all those ideas and concepts that they had. This is not something finite. It's only something that is like an intermediary concept that is a building block for maybe something better and something new in the future. He was very fluid with his concepts in the sense that he did not pin them down and said they are gospel. And it's exactly like this. He said more all the information he gathered and also the experience he had matches quite nicely on those concepts. And he very often compares this approach for psychology with physics, especially with atom physics. As he says that in both cases, you can't really see <laughs> what's there. You can a little bit do now see singular atoms and how they behave. But back then, it's this idea, okay, there is something, something made up out of matter, of atoms, which is a Greek word, by the way, which means undividable, which is ironic because uh, now people can split atoms. But when you have this model in mind of atoms, how it's explained that you have the protons and the neutrons in the middle and around it are circulating the electrons and it looks a little bit like a solar system. This is not really how atoms look like. It's just a model that makes it more understandable what could be happening there. Inferred by the experiments that were done and by the phenomena that people knew of, this module was the best way to approach and explain everything that is happening. And he saw the same way for the psyche as he tried to find a way to understand how the psyche works internally. But there already the trouble begins because we ourselves experiencing the psyche. So the psyche is basically talking about itself. We don't have this objective outside viewpoint that we can have in physics where we can measure something against something else that we could think of as objective. But rather, in the psyche, everything is tainted by the psyche. And when you're talking about the psyche, of course, that then you're tainted by your own subjectivity and your own psychology. So there he said, it's a big problem to find this 
Archimedean outside point to reference everything against. He tried, nonetheless, to find things that are comparable. And this is what he has done a lot. Similar as you have this research field of comparative literature, where you're trying to compare literature against each other to find out certain similarities or differences and to try to find out certain ideas and epochs like the romanticism or realism and so on. He tried to do the same with the psyche by looking at cultural products or psychological products as he was a psychotherapist also and had a lot of patients with psychological problems, but also dreams and visions and religion, spirituality. He really tried to find as much material that gets generated by the human psyche to compare it and find similarities to find out how the inside is looking. Because the psyche, for his understanding, was a black box. Stuff goes in, stuff goes out. What happens inside, this was really what was interesting to him. So one of those concepts to explain what was happening inside the psyche is the concept of libido. And the term does not mean what, what is mostly understood today, which is like a Freudian understanding, meaning sex drive. Freud talked about this a lot. They were friends, Jung and Freud. This was a point where Jung would diverge from Freud. They were close friends, but they diverged with time. And they had different views on psychology. And Freud really based everything in psychology on the sex drive, on libido. But Jung saw it way more differentiated. And he thought of libido more as a creating force as an energy. He says that, like you have in physics, you have energy when bodies are moving, like electricity is flowing and so on. He thought that what's happening energy-wise in the psyche can be explained through a concept called libido. He characterized this really as an animating energy. And I will go more into detail into that, but when you understand that libido has something to do with animating something, something that's inactive but becomes active, there's already a great start. Similar to physics and thermodynamics, libido can't really get lost. It has to go somewhere. It has to express itself. So when it disappears, it just means that it's popping up somewhere else, but it has to manifest in something. I will get more into examples later. Libido itself is not positive or negative. It's rather a neutral duality. It is a little bit like the sun. He described the sun shines for the good people and the bad people, for the predator and the prey. It's neutral in that sense. It helps both, and it can be this way or can be that way. What is important to understand about libido is that one important factor about humans and what makes human unique compared to other animals, because humans are also animals, but they're somewhat different, is that they have an additional amount of libido that they can consciously use to act in the psyche. So most of the libido, it comes out of the psyche, but there's this small part that humans can use to do amazing stuff. And we only need to look around to see what humans can do when they put their mind on, on it and apply their will and act consciously in an activated manner. So this is the energy inside the psyche, but how does the psyche look inside? Jung saw two very big areas. And he saw the consciousness and he saw the unconscious. So consciousness being everything that you are, that you know, that you can do, stuff that you are aware of, 
and the unconscious being practically everything else there exists. And he said that consciousness is born out of unconsciousness. The best way to get consciousness of something is to hit your head. If you want to do something or something happens to you and it is not going according to plan, you immediately snap into consciousness and you're very aware. This is a moment where everything goes, let's say, very slow. There was a um, good book by Daniel Kahneman. It's pretty famous. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow. He talks about the system one and system two. One system is very quick and more like a reflex. The other is slow and deliberate. And it's a little bit of this idea that you have the things that you're doing unconsciously, like driving a car or washing dishes. And you do this without really thinking about it. And you can't really remember it. You're not really aware of all the stuff that is happening. But let's say you're suddenly in a car crash, then bam, you're 100% there. You're so awake. <laughs> this is consciousness kicking in. This is the moment where there needs to be an adaption. So the consciousness is really the function of being adaptive and adapting to an internal or external circumstances. You have this two huge areas that, of course, are touching each other. They can move. Things from the unconscious can come up into consciousness. Things from the consciousness can also come down. This is why I wanted to talk about really dynamics and gave it to the title of the event to say this is really what is happening and moving between those two big areas, consciousness and unconscious. And I have this example of fishes because it's very often used in symbology to have unconscious contents popping up because water and the sea especially are very often associated for Jung with unconscious. You have a lot of life down there, but you mostly only see the surface. There's a feeling when you go swimming and you think there's a big fish or shark under you, you can't really see it, so your mind goes crazy. This is the unconscious. Things can disappear suddenly. Something falls into a river and it's basically gone, even when it's just a couple of centimeters away, especially when the river is dirty. And things suddenly can pop up where like, we're surprised, like an alligator or fish or anything. And this surface area is really a kind of threshold that separates consciousness and unconscious. But the psyche is doing very often for Jung as a kind of balancing act between those two. To have a psychic system, like an economy of energy, where things are flowing to the places they should go, but they can come the, this balance into the system. And the psyche tries to come back into this original state of equilibrium between those two and between all the energies. In that sense, the psyche is reacting like the body when you have a virus infection. You are unconscious of it in the sense that you don't know that you are now infected with the virus. What you are experiencing are the symptoms. The symptoms is a body trying to kill the virus by raising up the temperature of the body, for example. And you see, oh, okay, I'm feeling weak. I have high temperature. Seems like I got an infection. And similarly, the psyche tries to balance things out when there are disturbing factors in the psyche. And this can be, again, something internally uh, or externally and something involuntary. Like a car accident is something that is it's happening to you. So this is consciousness coming into, kicking into gear, trying to act, trying to find a new equilibrium so that you can go back driving the car and forget about the situation. 
this can also be done voluntarily. When you apply your conscience consciously, you also create a disbalance. It's a little bit, again, with a body analogy, when you're moving too far to the side, your bodily already tries to keep you in balance and not to tip over by shifting how your body is standing, for example, when you try to walk a rope, for example. So all this stuff is just a function of the psyche. This is stuff that is constantly happening without any conscious input. So that the energy is flowing, that it has to go somewhere, that the psyche needs to regulate itself. It's the same, same way. You have a threshold and we have things that are passing this threshold. How really does this happen and how can this threshold move? And Jung thought that all the things in the unconscious, when they stay in the unconscious, have pretty low energy. They have pretty low libido, which means you need a certain energy so that it passes this threshold. When there's something with a lot of libido, a lot of animating force, it breaks through the surface into the consciousness and you're suddenly aware of something happening. And the same way this requirement for experiencing this energetic factors can get lower. For example, when you're sleeping or you're stressed out or you're drinking alcohol or taking drugs or when you're, for example, meditating. So when you're applying consciousness actively, this lowers the this threshold of consciousness so that things can more easily pass over. One of the most famous examples for Jung is really dreams. When you go into this dreaming state, everything becomes a little bit looser in your awareness. So suddenly all those strange images, sounds, voices become more prevalent and you're experiencing all those strange things that you could never come up with consciously, but they come automatically. And Jung saw this really as nature. When the unconscious is speaking, for example, in dreams, this is a natural product that just exists and comes up. And so like all the fishes suddenly can come up <laughs> because the surface is not so tense anymore. So how can things move? And of course, they can go up and they can go down. And this is really the symbolic language that is used for Jung very often, that up is consciousness, down is unconscious. Things, of course, can drop from the conscious. This means stuff you can do, some stuff you are aware of that you know into the unconscious by the simple act of forgetting. You know something, and because you're not using it very often, it drops out and it goes into the unconscious. And suddenly you want to remember it, but you have a hard time doing it. And this is where Jung says the unconscious has it. And you have to apply a lot of mental energy just to, to get it out. And this is just a normal function. This happens. You can, I, I just said this recently, you can work many years in a company and meet all the people and have daily interactions with them. As soon as you drop out, a couple of years later, you will forget most of the names. Maybe even all of the names. You can remember the faces. And if you wait long enough, it's also the faces that you forget. So this is things just going down in the unconscious all by themselves. This is also this use it or lose it idea that you have when you do sports, when you do a lot of sports and are in training, you build up muscle, stamina, and so on. And when you stop, the body will immediately start 
to apply the resources somewhere else where they might be more needed. And this is things just falling in the unconscious and this is just the normal process. But then, of course, you can decide for things to be in the unconscious, to drop lower. And this is a concept called repression. And this is a huge staple of psychoanalysis of Freud, as the understanding for Freud was people are repressing. <laughs> They're repressing, repressing, and the problems that people have are because of repression. And here's another difference between Freud and Jung, as the Freudian understanding is always the unconscious is more like you're receptible. So things from the it push against the ego. The ego is under the influence of the superego, as the superego says. So those instincts and desires you have are not conforming with society. So try to get rid of them. And you, the ego conforms by spitting it all out into the unconscious. And it's just receptible. And this is a Freudian understanding of repression. You knew of something, you were aware of something, you evaluated it, and you deemed it not socially acceptable and not right or morally wrong. Doesn't matter. And this is why it's in the unconscious, because it was put there. So things can only go into the unconscious by repression. But the Jungian understanding is very different. As Jung said, this is not right. Things can be rather unconscious from the beginning. He says, at first, everything is unconscious. And only when it rises into consciousness, then something can be done about it. Of course, you can repress something, you know of something, if you don't want to think of something, especially traumatic experience, experiences, things you're afraid of, and so on. They are pushed into the unconscious. You try to forget about them. But at the same way, things just can pass you, and you are not aware of them happening. When two people experience something, they have very different experiences of it. Especially like when I go with my wife and we walk somewhere, she will comment on clothing or shoes or something like that. It's, it sounds stereotypical, but I've experienced it very often. And I don't think about this. So I could have experienced it, but it not, did not cross my consciousness. So for her, it was very salient. That's a psychological term for it. For me, it was not so much. But what Jung says is interesting in the sense that the psyche reacts to all of this. So all of this comes into the psyche, and only when the consciousness can connect to it in some way, then you will be aware of it. So if you are hugely interested in cars, you will more likely notice all the cars, the brands, is the cars damaged or something else. But all the other stuff, like people who are inside in the car, uh, could drop in your unconscious. And there it still is, and it can come back up. And this is something very cool that you can try for yourself. You can try it at home. If you would start recalling your dreams, one staple of Freudian dream analysis, and it has been practically confirmed by Jung, is, is that the psyche will take contents uh, of your day before that you were not really conscious about and present them during the dream. They came into the psyche, were not registered by consciousness for some reason whatsoever. But because you're now dreaming, the unconscious tries to form like Lego blocks, this dream images and experiences. And I had this experience when I started recording dreams, because when you start learning about Jung, you really want to start recording your dreams to understand them. And for some very weird reason, I started to um, dream of a school girl that I met many years ago, and I haven't thought about her 10, 15 years. 
for some reason, one day she stopped popping up. And for several days, she was there and became way more prominent. And I wondered why, why am I thinking about her now? And the following day, I, after several days of these dreams, I drove to work and I always have the same route and I drive my car and there I had to stop at a red light and I looked up and I saw a huge advertisement for um, writing your own book. Those are some weird company in Germany that every year, roughly at the same time, they do advertisement that you should write your own book. And the girl depicted there was incredibly similar to the girl back from school. And I thought, oh my God, <laughs> this is the psyche, the unconscious registered this, but I was not aware because I was driving to work. I was thinking about something else. But this content, those images were in the unconscious and in dreams, they came back up. So this is also how things can suddenly be in your psyche as the consciousness is not strong enough and big enough to really register everything that goes in. Of course, another form of repressing would be when you know of things, but you think, oh, that's not so important. It's not so important to think about this, for example, when... You've done something wrong and you say, oh, maybe it's not so wrong. Or you had a bad interaction with someone and you think, oh, this guy is overacting or whatever. And this is a discounting taking place. And like, oh, yeah, it's not so important. I will not deal with it. So it, we're slowly going to the unconscious, you know, really actively repressing it, but rather you try to take awareness out of it so that it, you forget it, about it. And the unconscious, everything basically stays the same. It doesn't change. It's very primitive, archaic, simple, and very often disagreeable because consciousness is something fragile and it can get overwhelmed. So already like an immune system inside consciousness itself, it tries to filter out things that could be too difficult to process. And Jung compares this to, again, the body. When you eat something, and your body does not like it, you will find out very quickly. <laughs> it will be taste, it will how it feels in your stomach, and your body will communicate with you, hey, that's a bad idea, that's a bad idea. Uh, that's very often why things are bitter, because bitter is basically associated also with poison, and small children don't like bitter stuff, really not. Older people more, maybe older people like poison more, um, but this is the body reacting to an outside phenomenon and giving you feedback about it. And consciousness is, is the same when it says, oh, this is threatening to the integrity of consciousness. This should be ignored, repressed, and so on. And the problem is what consciousness is doing very well is differentiating, bringing in complexity and sophistication into something to really separate things, finding the good and the bad, and not having this too close together. So you can argue about a lot of topics in a positive way, a negative way. And this is a sign of a good argumentation when you're possible to take both sides and have multiple arguments and have alternative viewpoints and so on. And very unsophisticated argumentation would be just, ah, it's bad because I don't like it, right? And this is all this. No, that's not really sophisticated. And you lose a lot by it. Like when you're, when you, you don't like, the other sex, it's a problem. They could be barred out of a meaningful relationship, right? 
this is why, even though that things look disagreeable, they should be investigated to find out, okay, what exactly don't you like? Because even there are people that could seem incredibly disagreeable, but when you interact more with them, find out more about them, they could be valuable friendships that could be forming. So this is stuff going down, but what about things going up? And this is something that Jung was really, really interested in and stressed a lot. He likes all the stuff that's autonomous in the psyche because the Western, modern interaction that people think that happens in the psyche is consciousness is aware of everything. Consciousness knows what's happening and making things happen and so on. And there's nothing else. There's only will. There's only what you consciously want to do. And he says, no, there's a lot of stuff that is highly impersonal and highly autonomous, and it's acting on consciousness. And this is by things suddenly coming up. And this starts pretty basic with even instincts, emotions, or affects that are acting. And this is, again, something that Freud talked about mainly. So like the it is only very primitive, basic instinct that cause people to fight, eat, sleep, and so on. This word emotion already indicates that something is moving, motion. Here, Jung sees more things happening as it can already be the archetypes he's talking about, where archetypes being more sophisticated instincts in the sense that it's mini dramas with the beginning, middle, and an end that get triggered so that you have human nature and this connects you to all human beings and in certain reactions and situations, all people more or less act the same. And this is an archetype that's then played out, but it can be more than a situation. It can also be a life that you're living out, an archetype, especially when you're unconscious of it. He saw archetypes again as something that is removed and impersonal, but he saw also something very personal in the psyche happening. And he called this very often the other. It's like a second personality in the unconscious. He also calls the unconscious very often the other. The other is really like a um, personality that can be interacted with. Here, I'm covering a lot of ground right now. Uh, I hope I'm not losing you too much. We can talk about it a little bit in the, in the Q&A after the presentation. But... Here, those concepts of Jung, of shadow, anima, animus, and self come into being. The self being the actualization of everything in your psyche that could be you being you, and the shadow and anima, animus being intermediate faces that the consciousness is able to recognize in certain stages of psychic development. But this is, again, an autonomous factor of the unconscious that can push certain ideas or visions to the person, also communicated through dreams. And what you have in archetypes very often is that they want to be manifested in some way. And this is where a lot of cultural products are coming from, also from Anima Animus, for example, as this is very often codified in art and in literature. So like when you have a love song, Jung is seeing this mostly as not love songs to a specific person, but rather to the anima animus. He also sees it when people have relationship to each other, like a marriage or whatever. What people, especially in the beginning, see more is this inner image that they have of femininity or masculinity, 
projected onto the other person and they rather interact with this image than the real person because it takes time to know a real person and he says some people never really break out they never see the individuality of the other person but rather they always see those anima or the animals and this is a really interesting thought and this is again stuff coming up and the especially vision part for the outside world the normal understanding is you look outside and you see the material, objective world. But it's not true in the sense, as I said in the beginning, the psyche is, again, everything psychic is tainted by the psyche. So it's, everything is very subjective again. The way you are experiencing the world is not really objective. That it's highly tainted by personality, experience, situation, your mood, everything. So it's like when you want to go to a party, you should be in the party mood. If you're not in a party mood because, for example, you have somebody in the family died, it's going to be a dreadful experience. Objectively, it should be the same, but the subjective makes it completely different. This is things from the inside going out and being projected onto the world. There's also stuff coming up. Fantasy being a very important part for Jung of things just coming from the unconscious daydreaming or you have suddenly certain ideas or hearing certain words it's different for people uh, rather they see images or, or hear words when they close their eyes um, and he says fantasies are very often also something impersonal you don't come up with them it's the unconscious that comes up with them so something is trying to communicate and showing you certain contents that are pretty hard to understand and the stuff he says, because it's coming out of the unconscious, the unconscious is very often not sophisticated, infantile, archaic, primal. It looks very disagreeable all because bringing in this refinement is the work of consciousness. You can, if you dig in the ground, you can find some rocks, right? And it could be copper or iron or gold. It has to be refined to something higher. So the potential is there but it has to be refined through consciousness. And this is one of the main tasks and duties also of consciousness. And here we are in the part of, okay, we talked about things falling down and things coming up, but what if I want to get stuff from the unconscious? So go into the unconscious to retrieve something, to make it conscious. And here it is this application of libido, of trying to activate those things in the unconscious that have a low energy to enrich them basically with energy to get over the threshold, to get into consciousness and they're being processed further. For this, remembering is already the easiest example that I also had before. Like you forget something because you have not thought about it in a long time and then you think, oh man, I knew this. I have it on the tip of my tongue. I have to wait. And then at a certain point, it will pop up into your mind and say, ah, oh, yeah, that was his name. Oh. This was the thing. There's also this process of conscious reflection, which is a huge part of psychoanalytic or analytical psychology therapy to reflect on things and in that way, bring them into a higher resolution to make them more sophisticated, to differentiate, to find the good, the bad, the details and all of that. It's the same when you are in a place where you have not been before. For example, our ch churches are great for that. So when you're next time in a new city or a new place, when you find a church and you like it just aesthetically, 
And very often what people do is take a picture and go on. And the expectation, like, I can always look at the picture and then I can see the church again. When you just look at the building, the longer you look at it, the more details you will find. So you had a value proposition that came pretty quickly, like, oh, I like this building or don't like this building. But you make out more and more details just by looking at it, by applying awareness. And the same with everything. The more attention you apply to it, the more of things you become aware. And this is investigation. And this is reflection. And this is really making unconscious things conscious. So this works externally, of course, for the building, but also internally. When I have a bad feeling. Okay, why I have a bad feeling? I'm thinking this. Okay, why I'm thinking this? And this is already the beginning of therapy. There's another technique that Jung very often talked about and that he himself was using, and this is active imagination, which is more like active fantasy. So you can have daydreaming fantasy just popping things up in your consciousness and uh, you're experiencing a little bit like a movie. Or you do it actively by really observing those fantasies and trying to keep this image in mind. And to make this more sophisticated and in that regard, again, bring it into consciousness to integrate it into this whole body of consciousness. For all of this to happen, <laughs> consciousness needs to be prepared. It's, it, it, when something comes, it needs to be able to be docked onto something in consciousness. An example would be when you try to understand a new topic, for example, Jungian psychology. In the beginning, it's all very overwhelming. Or when you try to learn a new language, it's overwhelming because it's too much information that cannot be docked anywhere into consciousness. It cannot really be processed. Only bit by bit, you learn to pick up more and more pieces. And at a certain point, you have enough to really process what's happening and being aware of all the stuff that is happening. I had this experience when I learned a language new. When people talk, it's all just a stream of noises. But when you understand a language, you can understand, oh, here's a pause, here's a comma, here's a dot, and so on. And the language you're hearing is basically all the same. It's objective in that sense, but the understanding of consciousness is then different. So it can be experienced different, and suddenly you can talk with people, you can learn new stuff in this new language that you could not speak before. Ironic talking about this in English, because I'm German, my mother language is German. But yeah, this is basically it how consciousness is then able to integrate all those contents of the unconscious if reflection is used or remembering or active imagination it is constant back and forth in the psyche and what life is about for jung and to have a meaningful life it means that consciousness is constantly growing and trying to integrate more and more from the outside but also from the inside so all those things that are coming up, all those instincts, emotions, fantasy, archetypes, also this interaction with the other, that this can be integrated by consciousness, that consciousness can cover a bigger and bigger ground and collect all the stuff that is there. Because when life is started as a child, children are basically unconscious. They are pure instincts, pure emotions. And this self-regulating ego and consciousness only comes with time. And it's like a little island that's moving through the water surface and then back down. It's 
only with time that it can establish itself and the island can become stronger and bigger and does not have to fear the water anymore. This covering and maintaining of consciousness is what it means to have a meaningful life as you start unconscious and try to bring your conscious to the point where it can collect all the parts that are supposed to be you, but they're hidden somewhere. It takes a lot of time just to experience oneself and one has to do a lot to know, okay, I can do this. I like this. I am like this. And this is this constant searching in life that Jung is talking about. And this is approaching this idea of the self, of realizing everything that is inside of the psyche that's normally hidden, but with time is then found. This would be the introduction into the psyche and what Jung saw there and the different parts interacting with each other. For him, it was all very, very alive. And he always stressed that there is not a strict system that he would not teach a system, but rather he would have different concepts that interact with each other. So that makes it also very difficult, but the, because there are not so many charts explaining this, but it's all very well hidden in different texts. And yeah, so I hope <laughs> you, you had fun and it was understandable. And I guess there will be a lot of questions now because I touched so many topics, which is very easily done when talking about Jung and his concepts and ideas. And yeah, thanks for listening. This was this event's topic. Thanks for tuning in. During an event, a discussion part follows after the presentation where all attendees discuss the just presented topic or other Jungian concepts. If you also want to join, find the group on meetup.com. The name of the group is CG Jung Helpdesk. Also make sure to subscribe to the podcast on the platform of your choice. See you next time.